More than 47,000 Americans lose their lives to suicide every year. What's been the pandemic's impact on suicide and what can be done to support those most at risk? Joining us today are three experts. Dr. Berman, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the risk factors for suicide? Well, from what we know, there's potentially a perfect storm of risk factors that are resultant from COVID-19. Most importantly, unemployment and the financial strain that people are going through. If that lasts, it's going to have significant impacts. And we know that unemployment as a risk factor generally is associated with a two to three-fold increase in suicide rates. Add that to the kind of intimate partner problems that may result from financial strain and from long-term unemployment, uh, the increased use of alcohol that has been reported in terms of everyday drinking, the increased purchase of firearms uh, in the home, which um, is very much associated with increased rates of suicide, particularly among young people uh, in homes where firearms are accessible, uh, the level of anxiety and uncertainty that uh, hopefully over time will subside, but for people who are already anxious and suffering from various psychiatric disorders such as PTSD or panic, um, that is not going to help. Uh, social isolation uh, in general leads to loneliness and um, a sense of withdrawal from human contact. Actually, there's some data right now that suggests that's not happening during the pandemic because we're making, as in this a lot of Zoom connections, um, but over the long term, if that persists, that will have significant negative, negative effects. Uh, there are barriers to care, people not going to hospitals or emergency departments for uh, physical conditions because they're frightened of getting COVID. Um, the move toward telemental health hopefully will abate some of the lack of human contact in everyday psychotherapy. Um, the level of, of, of angry irritability that might come from prolonged boredom. All these are risk factors for suicide. And I don't want to predict the future. Uh, it may turn out to be um, uh, nothing of any significance. But everyone I know is, is scared of what might happen. Wow, that you, you've really mentioned a, a lot. And Lisanne, I, I'd like to know, on the suicide prevention line that you run for WellSpace Health, what are you noticing since the onset of the pandemic? Um, we've had a large increase um, in overall call volume. Comparing April to April, we had a 58% increase in call volume and a larger percent, like we never talked about the COVID virus before March. Um, and all of a sudden it's 15% of our call volume, our calls involving the COVID virus. So that's one unique factor. But on top of that are many of the things Dr. Berman shared, you know, many of the risk factors that we know already exist for suicide, but they're ex um, exasperated, um, made worse by all the isolation that's happening. Um, yes, families uh, in general are uh, spending a whole lot more time together, and that's not always a great thing. And um, uh, especially in abusive situations, our domestic violence calls have gone up by 8% as compared to last year, same time period. Um, I can't say recently we've had several more, although overall, um, when I checked the COVID time period, our child abuse reports aren't significantly higher. Recently, we've had, um, since March, 
uh, we've had more child abuse reports, um, disclosures, and then reports um, than we've typically had in a whole year. Um, and so I'm, I'm nervously watching that, monitoring it, and um, thankful that folks are calling us, but um, they're calling feeling really helpless and um, hopeless and um, trapped and afraid. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity for individuals that um, even our leadership, not a, a critique on politics and politicians, but there's so much ambiguity from leadership on a national scale um, that it's hard for individuals to trust that there's going to be a solution and that it's, it's close at hand because none of us really know when the end is in sight. Um, and so for many who are calling the hotlines, at least, um, they're feeling really desperate and trapped and like they have to do something. Um, the calls that we're getting are also more acute than typically. Um, higher risk calls, more calls to 911. We try to avert that as often as possible. Like less than half a percent of our calls end up in a 911 intervention. Usually that's a suicide in progress. Um, but many more high risk calls than we typically would have at this time of year. Hmm. Ashley, I, I'd like to know, what is the single most important fact that every single one of us needs to know about suicide? I think the most important um, consideration with suicide is that um, lives can be saved from suicide. Um, just like the COVID-19 pandemic is asking us to be aware and vi vigilant of one another and how we can keep each other safe, we very much can do that with suicide. And it starts with of the warning signs of suicide in our loved ones. And then being aware of resources like those offered through Dr. Wick's program here in Sacramento. Um, so being aware of crisis line, you don't have to be a person in crisis. You could be a person who's supporting a person who's in crisis or in distress to reach out to somebody that is trained, that is there to support you, that will be compassionate and that will be able to provide interventions in a way that will be supportive. So you don't feel like you have to do it alone. And that goes for both the person who's at risk and also the person who's supporting somebody at risk. And so those resources are available to, to um, our communities here in California. You touched on uh, the signs mm -hmm. uh, someone's at risk. Uh, would you mind just briefly going over those real quick for all of us? Sure, and um, Dr. Berman and Dr. Wick, please jump in. Um, I, I have a few. There are, there are many. Um, as Dr. Berman has pointed out, there are several risk factors. And so um, there will be se several warning signs that will just be different depending on the person. Um, but um, common warning signs are giving away possessions, communicating a wish to die, or having plans to attempt suicide and communicating feelings of hopelessness and or having, a, having no reason to live or feeling like you have no reason to live. And so because so many of the warning signs are really dependent on somebody expressing what they're going through, the profound suffering that they're going through, it is even more important for us to feel like we can ask the question, are you thinking about killing yourself? Or do you feel like you don't wanna go on living? And those kinds of questions open up an invitation for the person who's suffering to express what they're going through. And we know that that in and of itself is life-saving. Let me, let me add Dr. into Berman. that. Yeah, one of the difficulties we have in the world of suicide prevention is that we have to rely on data that comes from research studies. And in truth, to date, there are only four research studies in the literature 
that have looked at uh, what we call proximal risk factors, that is warning signs, uh, behaviors, symptoms, statements made within the last seven or 30 days of life of people who then went on to die by suicide. So we actually know very little about what we call acute risk factors or near-term risk factors or warning signs. There are some, however, that have stood out in those few studies. Um, there are some historical variables that are true for uh, all people. Uh, history of suicide attempt, history of prior suicidal communications, uh, significant psychiatric disorder, family history of suicide, um, what we call comorbidity, having multiple, more than one psychiatric disorder impacting the individual at the same time. But there are indeed some very near-term risk factors that have been highlighted recently. Signs of anxiety or agitation. You know, we, we tend to think of suicide as almost synonymous with depression, but depression is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for people to be suicidal. If there are symptoms of depression and there are symptoms of anxiety and agitation happening at the same time, that's a recipe for real danger. Uh, sleep disturbances, sleep problems, nightmares, uh, difficulties in, in, um, in maintaining sleep such that thinking is going to be disordered the next day. People are going to be more confused. They're not going to problem solve as readily or as easily. Um, and the conditions, obviously, of job strain, financial strain, um, intimate partner problems, that too will again feed the kind of anxieties and um, as uh, Ashley man, uh, mentioned, a uh, sense of hopelessness and kind of catastrophic thinking uh, about the future. Bad things are happening now, they're only going to get worse. Um, and lastly, some signs of, of anger or irritability that are out of ordinary. Um, those behaviors, those symptoms, those communications, even without the context of someone saying that they're thinking about suicide. Interesting research fact, the majority of people who die by suicide when last asked before their death by a caregiver whether they were thinking of suicide, the majority will say they aren't. So the communication of suicidal thoughts is really important, but if those thoughts are not being communicated, but you have this composite of other behaviors and symptoms, people still should pay close attention and offer help and support. Dr. Berman, I wanna come back in just a moment to your point uh, about all of these comorbid factors, because it, it speaks to something that we'd like to explore about how there are things unrelated to mental health um, that impact suicide. Mm -hmm. Lisanne, I want to come to you right now based on what Dr. Berman was just talking about regarding the issue of that there may not necessarily always be outward signs and, and that a, a person may not just come, come forward and say, I'm suicidal. Any thoughts or observations on how we can tell if someone doesn't actually speak that they're suicidal at the moment, that in fact they are, um, they might be at risk? Thanks. You know, I was just thinking as Dr. Berman was sharing, um, there are all these things that we know statistically to be true. And it's hard for any of us to remember all of these things. But if you, if you think about big changes, big changes in mood, big changes in sleep, big changes in even appetite, um, big changes in substance use, um, big changes in behavior, uh, maybe some of these are all of a sudden becoming very reckless. 
or withdrawn or extremely feeling like they're a burden to others. This is really um, common worthlessness and, and feeling like they're a burden to others when, you know, if they were thinking clearly, they would understand that they're not. This happens a lot with older adults, uh, but really across all ages, children can feel like they're a burden to their parents um, when their parents would argue that that's, you know, nothing further from the truth. Um, and depression will really distort somebody's thinking um, to such extremes that they truly believe these lies about themselves and about their, their perception of the world around them and their relationships. And they feel, sometimes feel like even they're doing others a favor by ending their life and um, that it would be a relief to them or somehow they would be better off. Um, so looking for those subtle changes um, in mood and sleep and behavior, and um, you can tell when it's just something's not quite right. Um, and uh, uh, oftentimes people who are thinking about it, even those who don't disclose, um, Dr. Burman, you probably remember um, Kevin Hines when he shares his, his testimony about jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and one of the very few who survived that leap. Um, he was, you know, had bipolar disorder and he was in an extreme crisis. And on his way to the Golden Gate Bridge, he shared that, you know, he, he really didn't want to do this. He felt compelled to do it, but if anybody stopped him, he wouldn't do it. And uh, so he put the power, you know, the, the locus of control on others in that instance. But um, it, that there's a sad part of the story that, you know, somebody finally speaks to him and stops him when he's on the bridge, but it was only to take a picture. Would you take a picture of me? Right. And um, how tragic and ironic that was. And, um, and he did go on to jump and survive. And now he's, he shares his story and, and shares in the suicide prevention world all around for others. A stop. Ashley, it sounds like that there are a number of myths and preconceptions that many of us bring to the issue of suicide and suicide prevention. What are among the most common? I think some of the most common are that suicide cannot be prevented. Um, and I think that um, we are finding more and more as research, the research base is growing every single day that, that research um, ha is showing that, that suicide can be prevented and that people can be um, connected to a life that they feel worth living once again. And so I think that that's a really important message. Um, and, and it really is dependent upon all of us to um, coordinate our efforts and make sure that um, those, those types of best practices that are emerging through the research are being brought to scale across our communities here in California. Um, Incidentally, uh, when you were leading the research for uh, the strategic plan, the striving for zero. What is it that uh, we know about California and the incidence or prevalence of suicide or su suicidal behavior in California? What are the stats? So our stats are very much reflective of those um, in other parts of the country. And those are that older white men um, in California die by suicide, um, sometimes upwards to three to four times more. Um, than their counterparts. Um, we also see more suicide, uh, higher rates in our rural communities, particularly in Northern California. Um, but we see the greatest number of people who die by suicide in some of our larger urban areas like Los Angeles. And so when you're thinking about a coordinated response, we need to have 
um, a response that is responsive to both needs in our urban communities and also in our more rural communities. And so when we were developing the new statewide strategic suicide prevention plan for California, we looked at both the data and the statewide data systems that we currently have, but we also recognize that those data systems have significant limitations. For example, we currently do not collect data on LGBTQ um, people who die by suicide in our statewide data systems. And so we have very limited um, information on people who go on to die by suicide who are in the LGBTQ community. And so it's not only just the data, but it's also talking to community members, giving people space to share their community stories and fill those gaps that the data, our current data systems have in them. Once we can gather that information, we can start building out strategies that are responsive and targeting what we know to be risk factors and what we know to be factors that buffer against risk, like connectedness, being connected to cultural practices, being connected to community, having safe environments. If there is an interpersonal violence um, situation that somebody's experiencing, those interactions need to be addressed to further keep somebody safe from eventually, um, if they go on to attempt suicide, dying by suicide in the future, which we know is, is a, a big risk. One of the significant well, things I'd want to say about the California plan nationally highlighted is the importance that any plan or any strategy be built on good data. Uh, we don't have in any state in this country a suicide fatality review commission or committee that specifically looks at suicide deaths and collects massive amounts of data. We're reliant on some federal systems that are, um, are good, but not good enough to truly tell us the kinds of things we need to know to target our suicide prevention efforts. So it's very important, and I, I just thrilled to see in the California plan, the focus on getting good data. That's what informs prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, Dr. Berman, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, coming back to the whole notion of how suicide sometimes is unrelated, to directly to um, what we would assume would be a mental health condition. It begs a bigger question in terms of when you talk about the data, whether or not we're paying enough attention. Is suicide prevention a public health priority nationally? It's a terrific question. Um, in 1999, the then Surgeon General of the United States, a guy named David Satcher, made suicide prevention a national priority. He published a call to action, which led to a national suicide prevention strategy that was published in 2002, and then revised and published in 2012. Unfortunately, what happens in the federal governments, probably true in state governments as well, um, political will shifts. And with regard to Surgeon General's reports, every Surgeon General has a new report, a new focus, uh, a new area of interest. And it's not, the last one is not necessarily followed up upon. So one of the things we do lack in this country is national leadership um, around suicide prevention. Uh, leadership is uh, tied to sustainability programs. It's tied to funding. It's tied to all the things that make things work. Um, so it is a priority and has been established as a public health priority, but those basically more words on paper than they are in terms of realities. Ashley, I, I wanted to ask you as well, you know, there, there's, you say that there's a, a lack of data and, and sharing and that sort of thing. 
Tell us a little bit about the infrastructure for suicide prevention in California. Is, it, is this a cohesive safety net for the people who need the help? Sure. So what we found um, as we were developing the suicide prevention plan is that California has um, seen increases and decreases. Um, and, and those tend to follow resources and priority around building out that infrastructure. And so we have the National Lifeline, which Lee Sands um, program is part of. And um, we also have individual crisis lines. We have access lines. We have suicide hotlines in, in our communities across California. And oftentimes those numbers, those resources are not linked. And so those crisis line numbers are not necessarily linked to mobile crisis, for example, are not linked to crisis residential. Um, and so what we, what we have is um, many resources being delivered across California, but those are often uncoordinated. And as Dr. Behrman is pointing out, having that leadership in place can be that central um, state level leadership that could help coordinate those resources to ensure that that infrastructure is happening across our state and not just benefiting certain communities where that infrastructure is much more robust, needs to be connected to a larger network. Lisanne, your boots on the ground on you and your colleagues providing this vital service uh, throughout our region. How do you all deal with um, what Ashley's speaking of in terms of this lack of connectedness? Because I, I can assume that sometimes people uh, reach out to you from all over the place. And I know that you all have a bigger footprint than just Sacramento, but, but how do you manage? Um, a couple of thoughts came while um, she was talking. Um, one, that at WellSpace Health, um, we take a really proactive approach. Uh, we call it a, a, a blanket of care rather than a safety net because you know, there's holes and nets. And um, when I look at suicide prevention through the lens of this blanket of care, um, I looked at not only what can we do to help individuals who are actively suicidal on the hotlines, but also how can we address this further upstream. So within our agency, we also um, created a, a primary care follow-up program. So if any patient is identified to have suicidal thoughts, we use a PHQ-9. Um, and so they would automatically get, if they are having suicidal thoughts, they get a referral to a behavioral health specialist um, and oftentimes can be seen by an LCSW that day or shortly after um, at, within WellSpace Health, not outside. Um, and they also get access to a 30-day phone follow-up program where we do ongoing risk assessment and monitoring and safety planning, connecting them to not only the behavioral health within WellSpace, but also to, uh, also to other resources in the community, like maybe domestic violence line or legal assistance, things that would address the triggers that are propelling them towards suicide. We also have a really robust emergency department follow-up program that's been going since 2010 that now encompasses every hospital but one in, in the Sacramento region and Amador and Placer, um, where individuals that show up in the emergency department for suicidal ideation or an attempt um, are referred not only to whatever discharge plan they have at the hospital, but also to our 30-day phone follow-up program. Because they have an increased risk of reattempt post-discharge for up to 30 days, um, and so we want to take where people think they're all better um, went because they went to the hospital and uh, they got some help. That's usually not the case as in their eyes. Um, so we provide 
additional support and debriefing what it was like to go through that, what got them to that point, and how they're feeling afterwards, because not everyone is happy about surviving. Um, so we really look at all these different avenues where, that we can approach suicide prevention from, not just a hotline call center. Um, we trained uh, recently, just this fall, we went live with a post academy, the Peace Officer Standard Training in California. Um, and I got to be a content expert on suicide to create an online training that every law enforcement officer and dispatcher can now access on how to handle suicidal calls. Um, so it, we're helping to equip others to be better helpers. Um, and then um, also looking earlier upstream and not waiting for it to get to a 911 or an emergency department crisis, trying to help them within our um, agency and in, within our health clinics uh, that are located throughout the region. Um, and uh, so I, I think we look at it just through a, um, a different lens maybe than typical crisis centers um, and looking at all the different ways we can create those connections. Um, and I, I think the end result is much better and hopefully lower su suicide rates um, in the future, especially now with the COVID virus. And to that end, uh, if someone is watching this, Tell us, what is it that if they think someone uh, close to them is experiencing suicidal thoughts or is at risk, tell us where they should go. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, you're not alone and um, you can get help. And it's oftentimes confidential uh, within some you know, very uh, few mandates. Um, you can call the hotline, your call is confidential. Um, you can see a mental health professional, even amidst the COVID virus, there's telehealth and a well-space health, we provide that as well. Um, and depression is highly treatable and, and mental illness is oftentimes behind thoughts of suicide. Um, and sometimes people feel like it's just never gonna get better. It's always gonna be this way. And um, uh, having helped literally thousands of people over the last 17 years, um, I, I can share that it does get better. And sometimes, as Ashley um, alluded to earlier, sometimes just a single conversation with somebody, even a stranger on a hotline, uh, talking about the pain that you're in and uh, the situation that you feel like is um, has you trapped and desperate and hopeless. Mm -hmm. just, just having somebody listen can be tremendously helpful. But if you need to, you can always, as a last resort, go to an emergency department right. for an evaluation. Lisa Ann, thank you so much for those words of hope. We'll leave it there. Thanks to our guests, and thanks to you for all watching Studio Sacramento. I'm Scott Syfax. See you next time right here on KBIE. Thank you for listening to Studio Sacramento from KBIE Public Television. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes to help others find it. All episodes of Studio Sacramento, along with other KVIE programs, are available to watch online at kvie.org slash video.